Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Однако организаторы мятежа придав свою страну, свой народ. Hello and welcome back to Doomsday Watch. I'm Arthur Snell. Last week we had an incredible response to our emergency podcast, which I recorded with Mike Martin as the extraordinary events of the Prigozhin mutiny were unfolding live on Saturday. But no sooner had we finished the recording than we learned that Prigozhin had turned around his columns, that a deal had been struck. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko had somehow been the mediator, that Prigozhin would go to Minsk, to Belarus, and that the rebellion was over. So if anything's clear, is that it's very hard to understand what is going on. And perhaps it recalls that Churchillian quote, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Who did what? Who was on what side? The most recent development in this regard is the arrest of General Sergei Surovikin. He is arguably the leading combat commander that Russia has, but he was also believed to be close to Prigozhin and may have even in some way assisted with the rebellion. So that arrest is a reminder that although Putin wants us to think that everything has gone back to normal, he's giving speeches, he's back in control, it may not be that simple. There may be several people at the top of the Russian system who were willing Prigozhin on. So I wanted to get to the bottom of this issue and to talk to someone who really understood it. And one name sprang to mind, and that was Christopher Steele. As many of you will know, Chris was the head of the MI6 Russia desk. Then in private practice in 2016, he famously authored the Trump dossier, identifying the connections between Donald Trump's campaign and the Russian state. Chris is now the director of Orbis Business Intelligence and continues to work on Russia, investigating that country and advising clients on what's going on. You'll be fascinated to hear what he says. And later... We've got friend of the podcast, Dr. Jade McGlynn from King's College London, author of the recent books, Russia's War and Memory Makers, talking to us about Russia's society, about what it does to Putin's standing to have faced a rebellion such as this. Jade actually joined us from Kyiv, where she's currently researching Ukraine's response to the war. 
So we talked a bit about that as well. But before that, Christopher Steele. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we are talking, of course, in the aftermath of the attempted coup, or do we call it a mutiny, led by the Wagner chief Prigozhin, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Well, I suppose, first off, maybe we should tackle that question. Is this a coup or is it a mutiny? How, how do we characterise what has just happened? I don't think it's a coup in the sense that... Um, Prigozhin was looking to completely topple the regime or indeed possibly Putin himself because it's always worth remembering that he's the creature of Putin. He was created by Putin. He was close to Putin in St. Petersburg. But I think what he was trying to do was to get Putin to replace the military leadership of the country, which is a pretty big change in, in a place like Russia in the middle of a war. And it sort of spiralled a bit out of control, I suspect. So I, I would call it more of a revolt than, than a coup. So you think that his his stated aim, as in to get rid of Sergei Shoigu, Minister of Defence, Valery Gerasimov, the Chief of Staff, that was the, the project to change the military leadership? Yes, I think it was prompted by the attempt of the conventional military leadership of the country to incorporate Wagner uh, and its forces in, in, under the control of the army. I think there are probably all sorts of things going on under the surface that we're not seeing or understanding. And I would think amongst those, of course, is the fact that Wagner is a large business enterprise uh, spanning vast amounts of space in Africa and the Middle East and elsewhere, controlling billions of dollars of, of corrupt wealth. And I suspect that there was probably a falling out between Prigozhin and Shoigu and others over the spoils of war in Ukraine, because as we know, uh, the Russian army is the sort of army which uh, regards uh, fighting as uh, its duty, but the spoils of war, pillage and theft as as the rewards for that. And, and, and that's part of the equation. Yeah, there was a point perhaps on Saturday afternoon where it seemed reasonable to wonder whether Putin might be you know, getting on his plane and, and running away. And then by Saturday evening, it, it, it all seemed to be the other way around. And, and we're talking now the following week. And Putin is strenuously showing that he's back in control. But the latest news I've seen is that General Surovikin has been arrested. Yeah. So I guess we're trying to understand what's the impact of this on Putin's standing and, and on his authority. I think ultimately what this is all about is is the failure of the strategy and tactics in the war. You know, it's, it, it's an aftermath of the fact that Russia has basically gained no ground in the last year and probably lost overall net um, and has suffered massive casualties. And I, I just think that builds up a massive amount of pressure, even in an autocratic uh, regime, for change. And it looks as though Putin is in denial about that, saying that everything in the war is going well and so on, when everyone knows it isn't. I mean, I suppose slightly playing devil's advocate, you, you could argue, though, that, that Putin, you know, has showed that he's in charge because, it, yes, that there, there was this rebellion, but it didn't actually get that far. And Prigozhin going to Belarus, I mean, Belarus is a client state, isn't it? So he's, you assume he's sort of under Russian control there. I wouldn't necessarily assume that. I mean, I think it's quite interesting to think that Prigozhin might be a destabilizing factor in Belarus. As I've said, a lot of this revolves around corrupt wealth, vast amounts of it. Yeah. And even the financing of Wagner, you know, I saw a figure that suggested that 
the Wagner forces cost $250 million a month to maintain. And ultimately, what will determine whether Prigozhin has a future, whether Wagner has a future, and so on, is if they can maintain control over that wealth. And the wealth is interesting, of course, because it's a lot of it is in uh, diamonds and gold and platinum and other things, which enable people that control it to evade sanctions, uh, Western sanctions. And I think that's part of the equation as well. Talking about Putin's authority, as, as you as you identified, that w- we're looking at this situation where we're seeing the kind of unfolding or the falling apart of a of a strategy that's failed almost from the first day. But I suppose there's a taboo gets broken when someone actually leads leads an armed uprising, and and, and you know I, I think it was the Economist pointing out the first time that you've had an invading army, albeit technically a Russian army. Uh, marching through Russian soil, first time since since Operation Barbarossa. Given your own background, your, your knowledge, your, your continued access to information and so on, what's your sense of how secure Putin is now? And, and perhaps your sense of some of the people there around in the Kremlin who, who might be positioning themselves if they've seen that he's weakened? Yes, I think that they do regard him as weak, and I think they also regard the regime as having become dysfunctional. You know, ultimately, a lot of these people at the top of the regime are in in office, in power, to make money on the side and to, to lead a sort of almost a double life where yeah. uh, they, they perform a function in the state, but actually what they're really interested in is their corrupt wealth and how they're going to preserve it and, and, and pass it down to the next generation. So I, I think that that has become a real problem. And many of the, you know, if you like, the bad actors that we've talked about over the years in the business and in general um, are very discontented with all this. And I would say that it's complicated and difficult to discern who is talking to whom and, and about what in terms of regime change inside Russia. But there are certain indicators that you can look for. You can, as a criminologist, you look at who's not saying things about the war, who has not made a clear position in favour of the war, um, who has not turned up to the various sort of meetings where Putin is expecting people to sign up in blood to his agenda, the meetings with the oligarchs, the meetings of the Security Council and other things. And you can certainly pick out individuals, uh, I would say, in particular, Igor Sechin is an interesting one, um, who seem to be possibly positioning themselves to take over. And that's not to say they're liberal or anything, but it's, it's to say that they're more pragmatic and that they're not really strongly wedded, in public at least, to the war. Yeah. Some of our listeners won't know that much about Igor Sechin. Um, obviously, he's got a role uh, both as a former intelligence officer and a big player in in the energy space. But perhaps you could give a quick sort of thumbnail sketch of who he is. Well, you could write a book on Sechin. He's a very interesting <laughs> character. I mean, he was yeah. uh, a GRU officer. He's a Portuguese speaker. It's fairly bizarre. But he served, I think, in Angola and Mozambique in the 1970s. And he was really very close to Putin in St. Petersburg after the events of 1991, and I think was his private secretary at one point, came to the Kremlin effectively with Putin as part of Team Putin. But he's a very interesting guy because he's done jobs in business and in, and in government. He's been deputy prime minister and he's been, I think, deputy head of the presidential administration. But he's also 
been more recently the president, i.e. CEO of Rosneft, the big oil producing firm. And in that capacity, he's had a lot of exposure to Western business and Western governments. Uh, Rosneft, of course, was floated uh, on the stock exchange a few years ago. And so he's a guy who has to live in the real world, really, and has to be, in order to deliver and be effective, he's got to be pragmatic. So someone like that will definitely be looking at this war and thinking, what a catastrophe it really is. Obviously, in your work, you've been calling out uh, Russia's kind of baleful influence, both in sort of global security, but also more specifically in in kind of interference in 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 Western politics, Western economics, society, and so on. Uh, but I suppose where we are now, the mask has slipped. People kind of see Russia for what it is, but that doesn't necessarily answer the question of what to do afterwards. And I suppose what I'm talking about here is you know these events point to a a moment in time when Putin is no longer leader of Russia. Now, of course, there's no point speculating when that is, but it certainly brings that point forwards. Perhaps, let's say someone like Sechin, someone who's a pragmatist, some would say he's a man we can do business with. Is there a a version of the future where we slip back into that? Or or do we need a kind of fundamental change? Because it feels as if actually we need to learn some pretty serious lessons from the events of the last, last sort of 18 months. Well, I certainly agree with that, but I think in some ways the biggest threat now is the Russian Federation itself disintegrating. Yeah. I think that is actually more likely now, certainly than a year ago, and probably more likely than a kind of um, a consolidated pro-Western government like we've had in the past, in the 1990s. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, th- I just think that Russia, I mean, one of the key points that comes out for me for all this is that we vastly overestimated Russia for many years and Putin's regime, that it was stronger, more determined, more effective uh, than we were. And I I think that, you know, the likes of Merkel and indeed even Obama got this badly wrong, that Russia is actually a bit of a paper tiger in many ways. Um, And it's not really modernized or, or become more effective. It is utterly undermined by corruption on scales that we've rarely seen in human history. Um, and I think the war has been required in this particular event the last weekend to ju- just show us how far uh, down that sort of um, decaying path that Russia under Putin has travelled. Yeah. And I guess, you know, obviously we, we both have a background having worked in, in government. If, if, if we were sitting in a government briefing discussing the weakness of the Russian Federation, it seems to me that the uh, the immediate policy inclination of, of, of a UK government would be, well, we need to keep Russia together. I think whatever we think will have very little impact, frankly, on that process if it starts. And I think when you look back to 1991, very interestingly, and people don't understand this, the West was actually in favour of the Soviet Union sticking together as a new confederation. There was a whole uh, new union treaty agreed and so on before the coup in '91. And George H.W. Bush actually went to Kiev in, in, in 1991, it must have been, and made a speech which was known at the time amongst us as the Chicken Kiev speech, <laughs> uh, in which he actually advocated that Ukraine shouldn't become independent, that it should wow. become part of a confederation with Russia and the other states. And so um, we got that badly wrong. And I think we would be wrong to try and keep together what is effectively a land empire. People don't, again, understand this, that the core Russian state is is small compared with 
what the land territory is at the moment. Yeah. And that it was created by conquest and violence and by coercion. So I think if it unravels, it will be a policy challenge, but it's not necessarily bad for the West. It will require careful management, but our ability to actually influence what happens will be very limited in my view. Yeah. Well, that I mean, it's certainly, I think, speaking for, for Britain, definitely, I, could, I agree with that. I guess that, you know, the, the first thing that one would worry about is, is, is the nukes. Uh, you know, Russia, as we all know, has a large arsenal, big and small, and, and a, a collapsing country in possession of the world's largest nuclear weapon arsenal is it, a pretty scary prospect. Yes, of course. And that will have been the top item on the agenda of the COBRA National Security Council meetings um, in the UK last weekend. But um, again, we did face some of these issues in in, in 91, uh, as you know. And of course, there were nuclear weapons in non-Russian republics. There were nuclear weapons in Ukraine and Belarus and elsewhere, Kazakhstan, I think. And that was managed successfully reasonably well at the time by providing incentives really Mm. now of course part of that deal ironically was the budapest memorandum of 94 where ukraine agreed to give up its nuclear capabilities and nuclear weapons of course that's not a good example to wheel out now if the same happens in the russian federation but i think we should have learned some of the lessons from that period i do believe it's manageable um, but you know we need to be thinking about it now and not when it happens. Um, Chris, there was there was a lot of quite detailed reporting in the U.S. media, New York Times, uh, for example, about how the Americans seemed to know in advance um, that something was a, was afoot. And there's also been in reporting in the past of connections between Prigozhin and the Ukrainian intelligence. Is there a possibility that this that somehow Prigozhin was encouraged? perhaps by sort of false flag or, or other kind of suggestion? Yeah, I certainly think that's possible in terms of the, the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian intelligence services yeah. who do seem to have had some outreach to him. I think the United States would have been particularly careful actually engaging with him after all he is, a, as we know, an indicted individual. Yeah. He, of course, as well as founding Wagner, founded the so-called Internet Research Agency, which was intimately involved with that uh, election interference in 2016. Yeah, people forget about that Mm. and that he's been indicted in the United States um, in connection with it. And American intelligence does seem to have been ahead of the game in several major respects during this war, uh, how it started, when it started and everything else. They won't be disappointed that there's been instability in, in the Russian leadership because it weakens them. They will want to see, you know, in a Ukrainian breakthrough on the, on, on the battlefield. Yeah. And, of course, events like what happened at the weekend will have a big dent in uh, troops' morale. And, of course, that's slightly intangible, but everybody who talks about how wars and how battles play out talks about morale being a, a, a big factor in that. Yeah. And I think that this is a big opportunity for the Ukrainian forces to make gains. I think they're already making some. Yeah, I mean, not least that if you remove the Wagner forces from the front line, you're reducing the, the shock troops at the, who have been fighting the hardest. And yeah. I think I think there's a an outside chance of there being a mutiny on 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 the front in Ukraine. I think that would really shake the regime. I can't see Putin surviving that. And going back to the Americans for a moment, uh, do you think they have a 
a candidate or at least a sort of a least worst option when they look at this the slightly sort of ghoulish array of Siloviki around Putin um is there someone they look at and they think well we, we can we can at least deal with that person Yes, I mean, we hear rumours of all sorts of back channels going on, much of which is probably self-serving for Russians who want to avoid being sanctioned, I guess. Mm. Um, they will have a good idea of, of some of the power balance and some of the factional infighting that's going on. And they will be assessing, you know, what each of the five or ten likely successors might might do. Yeah, But it, it, you can't rely on that. I mean, I think the fundamental point to make here is that this is unpredictable. Yeah. You can't put your, you know, your cards all on one one person and I th- and I think they will be trying to establish lines of communication with some of these people. But I think that the most likely successors, whether it's Sechin or Patrashev, somebody like that are going to be very reluctant to get involved in any way with the US government at this point. If they come to power, that will change, but we're not there yet. Well, Chris, thank you so much for talking to me today in this week where so many interesting things are happening. And perhaps uh, I hope we'll get the chance to talk again, perhaps um, in a few weeks' time, see where things have got to. It's a pleasure, Arthur. Good luck with it. Welcome back. As I said earlier, I got the chance to speak to Dr. Jade McGlynn, who's from King's College London, and who many of the listeners to this podcast will know as a familiar voice. When I spoke to Jade, she'd literally just arrived in Kyiv. I spoke to her about the latest from Ukraine. But before that, we talked about Russian society and how that responds to the attempted coup and its impact on Putin's authority. Jade, you're joining us from Kyiv, I believe. Tell us what, what has taken you there and what, what, what have you sort of found during your, your visit? So this is my second visit um, this year. Um, and this time is a mixture of, I suppose, follow-up meetings from those I had um, in April and also some conversations, a bit of research, trying to understand. Of course, there's still a lot to be done on the military front, but as the conversation starts to move towards um, after the war, you know, what sort of Ukraine, um, do Ukrainians want? Um, what, given that they're total heroes, what sort of Ukraine do they deserve? And just trying to understand a little bit more some of the the, the internal dynamics. And of course, the world's attention got diverted away from Ukraine to the extraordinary events in Russia. Uh, were people sort of interested and in, in following that or, or not very much? Arriving here, I have to say that there's been less, much less attention. Um, much more attention is understandably on Kramatorsk um, yes. and on the um, attacks in the Kharkiv region. And there have also been um, rockets launched towards the Sumy region. They're pretty much what leads the news. And then, of course, the upcoming Vilnius summit as well. So there's not really so much about the rebellion still. That said, um, I think a lot of people are, at the very least, let's say, enjoying watching the spiders fight in a jar, as they call it. As you mentioned that you know you've got spiders fighting in a jar, and as someone who is also an observer and a, a analyst of Russia, what were your thoughts of an army marching through Russian territory, an army that is not under the command of the Russian commander in chief? What impact does that have on the credibility and status 
of the ruler of Vladimir Putin in in a in a country where sort of force and power is is almost the only thing that really matters. I think that's a question. The answer to which is still to be decided, depending on how much he can pull it off. But I think perhaps too much has been made of the of the fact that some people in Rostov were clearly happy right. to see Wagner, um, and were not happy to see the police. But I think in some ways the absences are more interesting here than the presence of right. certain things. So, for example, there really wasn't anybody who came out to defend the state. And I know that now they're trying to spin it. And again, I really don't know what the truth is. I know now they're trying to spin it as, oh, okay, well, actually, the local authorities were doing X, Y, Z. Um, you know, for example, like the National Guard, um, yeah. but it's not really clear that that's true. <laughs> so um, it could be, but often things the Kremlin said aren't true. And I don't know, I'm very sceptical. Um, I've spent a lot of time in the region and some of the people that I spoke to who are sort of from that southern federal district um, that borders Ukraine, they certainly weren't particularly fans of, of Wagner, but they they understood why the rebellion was happening because the, everybody knows that the war is not going according to plan. Yes. And they don't really understand why soldiers have such poor equipment. They don't understand why, you know, sort of old ladies are having to like knit them sort of warm gear. And it's people are very confused. Where has all that money gone? Um, and of course, and they're probably not wrong in this, though, um, you know, of course, allegedly, um, they feel that a lot of this money has been taken by the military top brass. And that's a narrative that Prigozhin, but also others who were sort of supportive of Prigozhin, even if they weren't supportive of him particularly, they're supportive of that narrative. This idea that Russia is a great country, Russia would have taken Kiev in three days, for example, like Prigozhin said, if Wagner were in yeah. charge. But the elite, they've been stealing. And, um, you know, as a result, our brave heroes, you know, weren't able to, to reach their potential because of the because of the elite. And I think that's a really appealing narrative to people at a time when, you know, they've also lost, you know, an incredible amount of people. They are cut off. The economy is, you know, it's, it's not great. Um, and it allows them to patch up a bit of wounded pride by blaming it not on the war, not on the fact that it's a completely insane war to to start with but and the fact that it's the elites that took them into this war and then they're also stealing everything and just sending the soldiers to die so once again the russians sort of become the victims and that's a much better position to be in than a perpetrator in, in one's own mind right yeah and so there's this sort of victim mentality but in in an interesting way that that that's also the sort of framing that that Putin uses to some extent in that, you know, Russia is a victim of aggression, Western aggression, Ukrainian mm-hmm. aggression, everybody's having a go at us. What you're describing is something that's that's on a different level where sort of the normal person is being screwed over. Does that undermine, mm-hmm. because something, and you've obviously, you've literally written the book on this, does that undermine the uh, the support for the for the war itself? In a roundabout way, yes, um, but not necessarily directly in the sense that it's not there's not that kind of full scale realization that reckoning that I think probably many yeah. like to see. Um, but it, it, of course, it undermines morale considerably, and it also undermines Putin because many, even if they don't like Wagner, sort of understand them as as ordinary people, as as not elites. Is that not in any way undermined by you know Prigozhin who? relied on all these Russian convicts who, you know, he treated as as pure cannon fodder. 
But this is the funny thing is there is a sense that Prigozhin, and I'm not, I have no idea to what extent it's true having fought neither with the Russian military or, or Wagner and having no intention to do either. Um, but there is a sense that he somehow is a harsh but fair taskmaster you know they get better food they get better supplies they have better sort of you know supplies both in military and in and in other senses by contrast i mean the situation with rations and um, equipment for the russian soldiers i just came back from a new um, exhibition here in kiev and part of it was they had sort of rations that were taken and the sort of equipment that was given to um, the russian occupiers who came to try to try to seize kiev and I mean, they're pretty shoddy if you're talking, you know, mm. that when they invaded, everybody was like, oh, this is the second kind of strongest army in the world. But I suppose um, that thing that, as you say, Prigozhin comes across as a sort of firm but fair. He, he's a regular guy. And in that narrative, it's hard not to see the Kremlin elites. And, and you know, this I'm, I'm using language that I'm trying to get inside the head of the person thinking this way as a sort of effeminate people who don't have never put themselves in harm's way and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, that's 100 percent it, though. I mean, that's the idea. I mean, it's all very yeah. much, you know, look at their particularly children. There's been a real focus on children, understandably. It's their kids are swanning around, you right. know, London or whatever, painting their nails, you know, for Going on nice yachts in the Mediterranean yeah, and all exactly. that. Yeah. All sorts of Western value nonsense. You know, meanwhile it's your sons, your sons who are being sent to die. I think any I think anybody can understand why that's an appealing narrative. And yeah. it also happens to be true. And I think that's another thing not to underestimate is Prigozhin at several points has told the truth about the war. Yeah. So I suppose then the question is where does this go? Because Wagner has just become almost overnight a, a, a state owned entity, you know, with the the, the different operations in Africa and the Middle East all sort of rolled in. Everything will look much more like the Ministry of Defense and the kind of the official structures and will go back to that system be running the war and leading the war. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, firstly, uh, I guess I'm a bit confused as to what will happen with all of the other sort of battalions. I think technically Wagner was always subjugated to um, the MOD, they just didn't have to, it was just, it was only a, in, in technical terms, it didn't actually mean anything. So, yeah. there was, you know, Putin, he likes all of this kind of legalism, he doesn't like the law or rule of law, but he likes sort of dressing things up with legalism. Um, yeah. So that's that's sort of one aspect. But in terms of the sort of the, the essence of your question, you know, one of the weird things, and I appreciate this is going to sound really contradictory, so hear me out. One of the weird things about the war is it really um, gave a boost to Russian civil society, yeah, it's just not civil society in the sense that we might like what they're doing. We, being the West, would like what yeah. they're doing. Um, so they're, you know, a lot of kind of creation of, of grassroots organisations who are helping to fund equipment, um, who are helping to, you know, provide medicine, to bring heaters and whatnot to, right. to the high territories to the soldiers, and um, it's among them and among the sort of mothers and wives of soldiers, various commissions, um, which the the Kremlin and governors are often, you know, very rude about. You're dismissing them, for example, just the other day that the governor of Stavropolsky region um, dismissed them as a Ukrainian info operation, the wives of soldiers, and the mothers of soldiers. Um, So there's a lot of anger there. And I think for a brief moment, it got channeled by by Wagner. But a lot of people really don't like Wagner. Progression is not popular and, you know, particularly actually among women because of the fact that he poisoned all the school children when he had the school dinners contract. Um, If somebody who is more popular were able to get hold of this narrative... Um, 
then I think it would be incredibly powerful. That said, of course, popular legitimacy, people don't, you know, notoriously don't really have much of a voice in politics in Russia. But I do think that popular legitimacy is likely to play an important role just because the elites are divided. So if the elites sort of came together around a successor or, you know, somebody else who who might follow from Putin, that's all they would need. But I really don't see a situation where that happens. And so as a result, you're going to have two kind of probably competing candidates or two competing elites, you know, thinking forward to the future um, after Putin, which everyone might be doing a little bit more now. And they're going to have to turn somewhere else for legitimacy. And that is probably going to be to people, right? Um, and clearly, this narrative is just there in the open waiting, waiting to be taken. And for obvious reasons, Putin can't take it because when push comes to shove, he always sides with the elites. Um, so I guess then the stability of Russia itself, and I know we've spoken a bit about this in the past, you know, the, the, the unforced error of the whole Ukraine situation, it doesn't take away from the fact that a, a sort of collapsing Russian Federation would be quite a scary thing for, for, for the rest of the world, I think, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. I mean, I know there are a lot of people in Ukraine who, I mean, definitely not all, but a lot of people who think that the end of the Russian Federation is in itself um, a good thing. Um, but it, I, I'll be honest, I don't really see a positive way for any of this to develop that's plausible. Of course, I can think of what I might like to happen, but it, it wouldn't be plausible. So... It's, it's very tricky. I can understand why Ukrainians would want the, the Russian Federation to collapse, um, but we really don't know the sort of the, the people that would come to power. That said, probably for Ukraine, it would be better if the Russian Federation collapsed. So from their point of view, from a national interest point of view, I, I get it. If I think, you know, sort of more from, from a British point of view, yeah, of course, you begin to worry because that, that is a country, as they, never, as they never tire of telling us, that has a lot of dukes. And also, of course, about, you know, within Russia, because any sort of ethnic tension that erupted to the point of, of war would, would lead to, to many people dead and to, you know, the repetition of some really horrible episodes from the 90s after the collapse of the Soviet Union when you had sort of many such such wars. Yeah, yeah. And I think people, you know, people have quite short memories. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that it, that, that it was not that long ago and, and, and we don't necessarily want to go back to it. No, and also I think really Russians don't. So that's one of the things that, if I'm honest, that really I think is underestimated in keeping everything together in Russia. It's just you know, Russians last century lived through, what, three state collapses? Um, yeah. And just the idea of having to live through that again and just the, the trauma and the turbulence of it, just wanting to avoid that, that's a big chunk or has traditionally been a big chunk of Putin's popularity is the fact that he brought stability. Yeah. I guess the question now is whether or not he can convince Russians that he still does and still will bring stability. But I definitely think that that, that reputation has taken, you know, clearly a bit of a battering and it's yet to be seen whether or not it can be repaired. I think, I mean, it could be certainly, but we don't we don't know yet. Of course, Putin's wider reputation is very clear all across the world in the context of the of last year's invasion. And as you mentioned earlier, we're we're speaking today just after another Russian war crime, the targeted strike against a restaurant in Kramatorsk, which was popular with families, popular with visiting journalists, clearly not a military target. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was deliberate. Um, I believe that the Russians have said as much. And and in fact, the I think I'm right in saying that the, the president has announced that there's been an arrest of someone who in mm. some way may have helped the targeting. 
Yes, exactly. So um, the SBU, the sort of internal security services, they arrested um, a man who, it appears, it's alleged, um, gave the coordinates um, to to the Russians, which of course then opens up, you know, these questions of of collaborators and collaborationism, which is one of the the issues I'm I'm trying to understand um, how that's going to be dealt with um, during my time in Kiev. Yeah, and indeed, and in a way that takes us back to. To, to the here and now, and and of course, one of the the sort of roller coaster of emotions of of this of these extraordinary events of recent days was the possibility uh, that there would be a kind of military collapse because Russia is so uh, preoccupied, and and it would enable a breakthrough for the Ukrainians in their offensive. Now that doesn't seem to have happened. Mm-hmm. What is your sense of of how that is all going? I think the first thing I'd say is. If people do feel impatient, then they can put their energies towards lobbying their governments to send Ukraine fighter jets. Yeah. <laughs> because one of the reasons why, you know, Ukraine has to be so cautious and have all of these kind of prodding attacks to find out where the vulnerabilities are is firstly because unlike Russia, Ukraine um, you know, cares about um its its people. It's already lost and, you know, an awful lot of, of soldiers and civilians. Um and it doesn't want to just you know, use the Russian approach of meat storms, as the Russians call it, and and secondly, because they don't they don't have obviously the air superiority, and of course, it's a lot harder to to attack than than to defend, and the Russians are really dug in. I think um, another aspect is that, of course, it's in the long term a good thing if Wagner are taken out of the Russian sort of fighting forces because they were an effective force, but they are primarily an offensive force. So it probably wouldn't really make any difference to Ukraine's counteroffensive or any huge difference to Ukraine's counteroffensive at this point anyway. Um, In terms of how it's going more broadly, I have to be honest, I I don't know, because it's all just so shrouded in in so much secrecy, you know, even sort of very good friends, they won't even kind of start conversations on it, or, you know, they'll they'll just say sort of platitudes. And I understand that, to be honest with you, I don't normally really ask. Um, So... I think there are two aspects. One of them is that we should probably have learned from last year to, you know, that maybe not everything will be exactly as we think think it will be. This is obviously an asymmetric war in many ways, you know, because Ukraine is a, you know, considerably smaller sort of population-wise, let alone territory-wise country. And secondly, as well, that, you know, this is going to be a long war. And I think really that's probably a criticism for our Western politicians, that they need to put out more signals to populations that this is going to be a long war. Well, on that very important point, I want to thank you, Jade, for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I hope we'll have you back again soon. Thanks, Arthur. Well, that's all for now, but thanks for joining us again. Events are moving fast and we'll continue to try to keep you updated. But if you want to find out about how we got here, if you haven't already listened to it, don't forget that our most recent series of Doomsday Watch, The Ukraine War, tackles exactly these issues. In episode one, the renowned photojournalist Paul Conroy describes watching Wagner troops in action charging at Ukrainian machine gun posts in Bakhmut. So if you find these reports useful or interesting, please support us via Patreon to help us carry on making these shows. And if you do that this week, you'll be able to join a special Zoom on 6th of July at 7pm, where I'll be live with Andrew Harrison, answering your questions, 
He'll be interviewing me about the most recent show. And we'll also be joined by our producer, Robin Lieburn, who's responsible for the soundscape. And we'll be able to talk about his contribution to the show. I hope you can join us. If it's of interest, check out Patreon Doomsday Watch and you can sign up there. Thanks for joining us and I'll see you next time. Doomsday Watch is written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced and edited by Robin Lieber. Group editor is Andrew Harrison and our theme tune is by Paul Hartnell. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production. <laughs>